And um, we'll be reading a longer text, but we're only really talking about 12 of them or so. And we're in the middle in Philippians of a long section on sanctification, one of these big words I talked about last week where I challenged you. Look, you're in college, you're smart, fits a good school. You can understand what sanctification is about. You shouldn't run away just because it's a big word. It's the idea that God is working in his people to make them more like himself, to make them more beautiful, more holy, more happy, uh, to make them like Jesus. And he calls us in chapter 1 to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. The fact that we, as, if we're Christians, that we believe the gospel means we should live in a certain way. And then he begins a thick explanation of how this is possible. Christ came down. He died for us. He humbled himself. And then God's at work in us, and we should work it out. A, thong, a long theological explanation, if you will, of how sanctification works, of how God makes his people like himself. When I was in seminary, uh, in grad school, there was one guy in my class who liked to play dumb. He looks dumb, so it worked well. He was like 6'7", 260 pounds, and he liked to play big dumb athlete. So after some particularly abstract, long lecture from a professor, he would invariably raise his hand and say, uh, Coach, could you uh, put this in huddle, huddle talk for us? And actually, he never talked like that except for when he asked this question. Could you put this in huddle talk? In other words, could you break it down for us stupid, stupid slow people? And if, if Paul is doing this here, his answer to that question is, okay, sanctification, look at those guys, watch them, do that, grow like them. And that's what's happening in this text in verses 18 to 30. So follow along as I read. Philippians 2, 12 to 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager. To send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word. Some of the things that we'll talk about tonight are hard. Pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts soft and our minds sharp, that you would move that those that... Uh, don't yet know you, perhaps 
half a step, one step closer. And the rest of us, Lord, that uh, do know you, but are yet hesitant to fully embrace your call, that you would help us to be more faithful, loving servants. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. When I graduated college, I found myself within six months doing something I really didn't want to do. I didn't know it. I should have known it. I signed up for this one-year program called Doulos. Now, Doulos is a Greek word, and if I knew Greek then, like I sort of know it now, I knew what I was getting myself into, because the word Doulos means bondservant or slave. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, what this place was, as I discovered my second day there, was a residential child care facility for very bratty, very needy, very angry, rich, white teenage boys uh, who wanted nothing to do with us, where we would work for all but 12 hours a week without pay. If you resent, if, if you detect any bit of resentment or bitterness, you're correct. It's, it's still there all these years. Not because of the job, but because they weren't honest about the nature of the job. Uh, the first few months after I got over the fact that I was going to be there and I wasn't going to quit, even though I felt like I was misled into joining because uh, I'm not a quitter, I, uh, the first few months were actually okay. But then I went, I went home for break. We had a little Christmas break, and I came back, and I could not re-engage. I simply could not get back into it. Whereas other guys, the other guys I worked with were busy uh, pursuing the kids that they were supposed to, investing in them, loving them, or hitting off the crisis, breaking up the fight, doing the drug bust, whatever it is that we're called to do. I was preoccupied and distant and aloof. I sat at a table and read a book. I could not care less, and I didn't want to care. And uh, the interesting thing is at the time, um, one of the things I was thinking about all the time was going to seminary to be a pastor to serve people. And here I was in the midst of a call to serve people, and I could not do it. Uh, One day that week, one very good friend of mine from that home, and he was a lifelong friend, I actually unintentionally drug him into this mess with me. He took me aside. It was very painful. And the moment he opened his mouth, I knew what I was in for. And he he rebuked me. He said, it was very short but sweet, we need you. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're thinking about. But we're not going to survive here. Unless everyone's pulling their weight. I don't know what you're thinking about, but we need you. And uh, I was convicted and broken and uh, began to re-engage. And I learned I, I did not necessarily enjoy those next seven months of work. But I did my job. I was faithful. And I learned some things. I knew they needed me. I knew the kids there needed me. Uh, what I didn't realize yet was that that hard service was, was part of God's plan to do work in me to grow me, to change me. And actually, as I started working, I went from being miserable to actually being joyful again. I mean, I still didn't want to necessarily be there all the time. But the vitality and the life returned, and I grew. And I'm better for it now. We're talking about service tonight, and we're going to talk first about why we don't serve. And uh, it's a reality. I've talked about this many times in REF. You new folks, uh, by new I mean brand new, you need to know this. In RUF, we're called to serve. Also, historically in RUF, we don't do a very good job of it. Um, Because I don't think we think it's important. Um, Or if we do think about service, we think of it as something we do and not something we're called to be, part of who we are. And I think there are deeper reasons why we don't serve very well in RUF, and we'll talk about them throughout the night. But this is a really, really big problem. Because as Christians, for Christians in the room, service is not optional. It's not optional. It's not even an important part of the Christian life. It's not a part of the Christian life at all. 
it's so essentially tied to the nature of the Christian life, to Christian maturity, that you could say it is the measure of Christian maturity. You could say that you cannot be mature without it. We're going to see tonight that Christian maturity is marked by service. And very simple outline, if you're a note taker, no one is. I fixed that. Um, but to mature, serve, and its service matures. Now, before we go any further, I just realized this earlier. There's two ways to pronounce the word mature, and I'm going to say it over and over tonight, so I'm going to give you the option. Do you want me to say mature or mature? <laughs> all right. All right, all right, all right. One of them sounds cleaner, but one of them sounds more pretentious, so I guess you want the thick, garbled mature, which is like M-A-T-C-H-U-R-E. That's how it's spelled. Mm. All right. All right, all right. Look, look, look. I wasn't supposed to set up a riot. I was going to make a simple vote. Just get over it. All right, here we go. Re-engage. Come on. The mature serve. Now, our text is about two men. And although they have a lot in common, they're very different. We have Timothy and Epaphroditus. One of them has a nice name. One of them has a very unfortunate name. Um... And I think, sort of reading into the subtext of this, it's not leaping off. Some of this is me reading between the lines, and I might be wrong. But I get the sense in the way Paul's writing that the Philippians really want one of them, and they're sort of getting the other one. They really want Timothy. They've already had Epaphroditus. He's their guy. One is sort of revered and honored. Paul has to tell them the honor of the other guy when he comes back. One's sort of a son to Paul. And well-respected, he is a pastor, he's helped plant churches, he's been here before in Philippi, they're really longing for him. Uh, He's a pastor, a minister, a church planner. Paul even says, I've got no one else like him. Uh, The other guy, Epaphroditus, for all I know, he might be some middle-aged, short, balding guy. They sent on a mission, and now he's coming back. Now, maybe he's not. But he is just a guy from their group that's on a mission, and now he's returning. We have two very different guys. And yet, they have one big thing in common. They're both models of maturity. They're both models of maturity in this text that are marked by service. We'll start with Timothy first. He's sort of the leader, the pastor, our quintessential leader. If we think about a Christian leader, it would be someone like Timothy, verses 19 to 23. First of all, he's faithful, not in particular order, but faithful in verse 22. He's been proven worthy. He's been through the battles with Paul. He's done his job. He's done it well. He is of proven worth. And he's loving. He genuinely is concerned for their welfare in verse 21. Not just sort of concerned. I mean, Paul and Timothy oversee a lot of churches and a lot of people. It's hard to be concerned about a lot of people. He really is genuinely concerned from the heart for them. That's love. And he also cares about them sacrificially. Um... And this is not as clear from the text, but he's saying, Timothy's not like some of these other people I could have that I could send to you. They are not interested in you. They don't have your interests in mind. They have their own interests in mind. That is a sacrifice. Timothy has long given up and sacrificed his own interests for the interests of other people. And it's also the sacrifice of the fact that Timothy is a vagabond, like Paul. He travels. Paul's going to have to send him. He's going to have to come. Paul and Timothy are always traveling, and it's dangerous. And uh, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice he gladly makes for the Philippians and for others. He is a faithful, loving, sacrificial leader. In other words, Timothy is a servant. He's a leader 
servant. And I think Paul is saying, and sort of this becomes clear as we go throughout the book, you're called to be like Jesus. Because the gospel is a reality in your life, you're supposed to grow like Jesus. But sometimes you need another example. So, take a look at Timothy. Be like him. Now, we have uh, in our lives, in our culture, in our world, lots of lesser examples of Christian leaders that aren't nearly as flattering as Timothy. Uh, Televangelists, charlatans, uh, pastors who lead with an iron fist. Some of you, perhaps, if you're not from the church and or a church background, uh, you turn on the TV and, and what you see, you think, if that's a Christian leader, I want nothing to do with it. And lots of times I would have to completely agree with you. Uh, and, and Paul and Timothy and Jesus acknowledge this. It's the way it's been for 2,000 years. It's the way it's going to be. There will always be people, chapter 1, like Paul says, who minister out of bad intentions, selfish ambition. Even here he's saying, there are some people I can send you that are sort of helpful, but they've got their own interests in mind. There are always wolves, people looking to take advantage of God's people. But there's an important principle for life that you need to embrace right now. I've been floating it out recently. I'm going to continue to float it out. It's a Latin phrase, abusus usum non talit. You don't need to know the Latin. It simply means abuse does not negate proper use. It's a very important principle. It's one of these deals sort of like, you know, because someone drove intoxicated and wrecked, none of us should ever drive again. What? No. No, just because some idiot abused doesn't mean we should never do it. In the same case as here, just because there has been a bad pastor or many bad pastors or many bad Christian leaders or a Christian leader in your past even who ruled with an iron fist and who did not love you does not mean there cannot be good Christian leaders that love and serve sacrificially and faithfully. Well, let's talk about the servant next, and that's Epaphroditus. They're both leader servants, but I'm just sort of focusing on aspects. He is sent out from the Philippians to Paul on a mission as their messenger, as their minister, as their servant to Paul. And, I, and again, this is sort of me reading into the text. I get the sense that the Philippians sort of want Timothy. They want Troy Palamalu. They want the stud. And Paul's saying, you know what? I really need him in the backfield for me. Um, it's, it's, it's really bad right now. I need him in the secondary. I can't do without him. But I've got for you another guy, Epaphroditus. He played football in the eighth grade. He'll be fine. I think he's thinking that's what the Philippians may be thinking. But Paul goes out of his way to say that's actually not what's happening here. Because Epaphroditus can play the game. He's a stud. He's been faithful like Timothy. Paul calls him in verse 25, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. If Timothy's been to battle with me, so has Epaphroditus. He's a fellow soldier. He's not only faithful but loving. Verse 26, he longs for you. It's the same word he used to describe his own affection for the Philippians. It's this very messy, guttural, emotional word. He yearns for you. Um, so much so that when you heard that he was ill and it distressed you, it distressed him. He loves you so much that your distress is his distress. He loves you. He feels your pain. And it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Epaphroditus, you may just think he's some normal guy, Philippians, but he risked his life on this mission. He almost died. He's a great guy. He's a stud. He's a hero. He's a servant leader that you should imitate, that you should honor. And frankly, there are other examples in this book. Paul doesn't talk about himself very much, but in chapter 2, verse 17, we're not going to go back and look at it, but he says, I will gladly pour myself out on the sacrifice of your faith. And then to make the point clearer, and I will be glad, and you will rejoice 
and you'll be glad and I'll rejoice. It'll just be a good, glad, rejoicing party. That I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Um, and this gets at the heart of this idea we have that if we're going to be serving others deeply from the heart, faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially, that we're going to be miserable. And this text doesn't confirm that in any way. Neither does the life of these men. This is beautiful. This is good. Uh, Anne Lamott is a very funny, very good writer, also a very irreverent one, and sort of a very messy Christian. Uh, But I really like her writings. And in her spiritual biography, uh, Traveling Mercies, she writes about a a time in which, right after her first son was born, maybe her only son, Sam, was born, um, she remembered thinking one night, I think this believing Jesus stuff is crazy. I think I'm done. And then something truly amazing happened. She said, a man and his wife knocked from her church knocked on the door. And after gesturing and welcoming and playing with the kids, they said, uh, we were thinking we'd really love to help you and your son. And so we have a question for you, Anne. Um, if, a, if a fairy were to knock on your door and, uh, and say, if there's any one thing we could do for you that you would never ask anyone to do, what would it be? And she thought about it for a moment and said, I, I actually, uh, I won't tell you, it's too horrible. It's like, and he eventually convinced her and persuaded her uh, that what she really needed done with this newborn child, a single mother, was for someone to clean her bathroom. So he took everything to her bathroom and worked away for an hour scrubbing her toilet and her bathtub and her sink while she sat on the couch watching television, feeling a little guilty, nursing her son. And and she writes, but it made me feel feel sure of Christ again, of that kind of love, that this, a man scrubbing a new new mother's bathtub, is what Jesus means to me. What she's saying is, in this man's action, I am reminded again of the reality of what Christ has done for me. And the fact that there's someone like this reaffirms that Christ could be like this. What you need to hear, if you're in the room tonight, as a Christian is, the world needs to see this in you. They really do. They really need to know that love and service like this is possible. Non-Christians, you need to see this from Christians. Christians are called to this. And we often do it poorly. And very often, you do it better than we do. Christians, you need to do this, not only for the world, but for your own good. What does maturity look like to you in your own head? What do you think about maturity? Some of you from the uh, same kind of background I'm coming from, very knowledgeable Presbyterian background. Maturity looks like knowing your Bible really well, knowing everything, getting it right. For some of you, maybe from other backgrounds, maturity looks like doing the right thing. In both cases, something very important is missing. And that's love. Love for God. Love for others that moves out in service. And my experience has been, no matter what your background is, if maturity is those things for you, and you're lacking a love that moves you to serve other people, you've got something like an ill-fitting shoe for a faith. Like, you almost want to get rid of it. It just does not work or feel right. You're often haunted by your own doubts because you don't see in your own life the fruit of growth that you should. You don't see the reality of God changing you because you're not hanging it out there for the good of others. You're not actually seeing God using you to change others, to love others. You're insecure. 
and doubting, troubled by doubts, until you begin to serve, to grow. When you do that, you'll begin to change. You really will. That's the first point, that the mature serve. The second point goes much more quickly. It's that service actually matures you. Now, uh, some of us have the impression, I'm thinking of some of you in particular, a lot of us have the impression that the way Christians grow, that the way we're supposed to grow is the same way we get ready for life in the morning, which is we do it privately. We go, we clean ourselves up privately. We know all our imperfections. We cover them as best we can, if we care. And we get dressed and we go into the world. And that's the way some of us think about our Christian lives. We've got to fix ourselves in private before I can go do a thing in the world. That's fundamentally flawed. It's just not true. God intends to sanctify you, to grow you, to make you more like Jesus in the midst of your mess, in the midst of everyone else's mess. Now, there is a way, as I'm talking about service here, that you can serve selfishly. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? Because some of you, if you come to me afterwards, angry at me, I'm going to say, you heard what I didn't say. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying your service is selfish. I'm not saying any particular service project is selfish. I'm not saying PMAT is selfish. I am saying that almost any service you do can be selfish. And I'm admitting right now, I don't know what's in your heart, but it's your heart that makes your service selfish or not. So, this is why I say that some service is selfish. Because of the reasons people tell me why they serve. One of them, and one of the most popular ones is, it makes me happy. Well, that's good. Actually, I'm not going to beat that up. It should make you happy. Paul talks about this. He's pouring his life out for others, and it's a joy fest. I mean, this life of service should lead to joy. But if that's the only reason you're serving, are you really about the service? Are you really about others? Or are you just doing what's good for you? If, you were, if it was not making you happy, would you stop serving? I would assume so. Uh, another reason that's often given, maybe not always, but perhaps in private, is uh, this will look good on my resume. This is a symptom of what I call our awesomeitis. You are all stricken, except for some of you guys. You actually could use a little bit of it. Um, but the disease of awesomeitis. You have to prove yourself to the world. You're building your resume for the world. I don't know who you think you're going to impress. Actually, I know who you're trying to impress. But um, we are so preoccupied with being perfect for God, perfect for the other gender, perfect for a future employer, that we don't really stop and consider why we're doing what we're doing. Often, this kind of service is just a means to an end. And when you are serving by these motivations, and I'm not saying you, that all of you are doing this, but when you serve with only these motivations, this will happen. You'll serve out of your strength and serve only in ways that you want to. You'll serve those people and not those people, because those people are fun to serve, and I like them, but I'm not going to serve those people. Uh, you will serve sort of an ideal humanity, perhaps. There are some of you here that love people in a very general sense. You're a humanitarian. But you hate your roommate and your family, and every roommate you've ever had. Seriously. I love people. Which ones? I haven't met them yet. 
and this, this is not, I'm not picking on anybody. I see this in Christians all the time. I've done this. I would rather get on a plane and pay $1,000 to fly thousands of miles overseas to serve those group of people than love my neighbors. Because my neighbors are really hard. You've met my neighbors. <laughs> they don't like me. But a lot of us are like this. We'll serve who we want to serve out of our strength. Instead of serving those that God calls us to serve right there in the midst of it. It's selfish service. We can be mercenary servants. Serving only for our own ends. And it's not that God can't use that and bring change in the world and do good things. He will. The thing is, He won't change you. You are short-circuiting the process of sanctification when you do this. This kind of service will not change you. It will just leave you comfortable doing exactly what you're doing. Sanctifying service, friends, is hard. And the best example I can give is one none of you are doing right now that I know of. If you are, let's talk about it. We need to. That's parenting. Um, <laughs> seriously. The same characteristics, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Faithful, loving, sacrificial. And all those things are hard, friends. Faithful means you are committed Proven worth, fellow soldier, worker. That's the how we described faithfulness earlier. You've bought in and you're committed. And there's no opting out of this. You're faithful. You're going to keep doing it, no matter how hard it gets. It means you're going to serve these people, and you, you're committed to that more than you're committed to your own interests. Because Jesus is interested in them, and because you have Jesus' interests in mind, you do it. You count His interests... Other people, more important than your own. That's part of being faithful. And if you're just faithful and not loving, you'll be miserable. So to be faithful, you actually have to be loving. You have to be growing in that too. You have to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, like Timothy. Like Epaphroditus, you actually have to long for and want the best for people. You have to have empathy. None of you have this naturally. We're not, most of us aren't born with these qualities. You grow in them. And especially as it concerns very needy, broken, messy people, just trying to wear us out. Loving these kind of people and serving them requires an other-centeredness, not just in our actions. Anyone can fake it for four hours at a soup kitchen. But to make it a faithful, loving, sacrificial part of your life, it requires an other-centeredness that you can't fake that comes deep from your heart. And once you're already there, faithful and loving, you will find it to be a sacrifice. It will be sacrificial. And because you love them, you willing to let things go. And this is the way it is in parenting. And no one is equipped for all this when that first baby comes. But you buy in. Because they're yours and you love them. And you find out you don't love them enough. You actually, you don't love them enough at 3 in the morning to do what they really need. And you have to grow. And it is a stretching, growing, painful experience to actually come to love these are, these are my own children that I love. <laughs> to actually love them faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially requires a massive expansion of who I am as a person. Yet God has to make me like himself. We don't have the resources to do this. Jesus does. And he gives them to us. This is hard. The same children's home that I worked at, the same friend that rebuked me, Four months later, he walked in after doing a work project with a 12-year-old. At any moment now, I expect to be on the news for having committed like a mass atrocity. Uh, he walked in and said, Derek, I almost killed him. 
I was like, how? He's like, I almost hit him in the head with a shovel. Dead serious. Yeah? Uh, this guy right now is a missionary who sold his whole life out to work with Muslims in Spain. Okay? He loves people. It is hard to serve hard people. And you don't have the resources to do it on your own. God has to fundamentally change you. But in the process of serving hard people and doing it, He will. He'll show you what's in your heart. You'll be thrown in dependence upon Him. He will grow you and change you. He'll do this because Jesus knows exactly what it's like. He is a faithful, loving, sacrificial servant. He's done it for you. We studied it in chapter 2. He came all the way down, took the form of a servant, gave his very life, offered the ultimate sacrifice. So we grow, we change, we mature by serving in the midst of the mess. Your mess. In the midst of everyone else's mess. So just a little encouragement and we're done. You have to let go of what I'm calling your sanctified self-preoccupation. Not all of you are like this, but some of you, you're trusting. You're, I'm talking about the Christians in the room. Non-Christians, you've been privy to me. I'm not taking the whip out, but we're talking about some hard things. I'm, I'm calling this community of believers to be what Jesus has called them to be. And uh, you need to know that this is what God calls us to be as Christians. Uh, Christians in the room, uh, God calls you to serve. And some of you are thinking, oh, maybe I'll do that once I get my act together. And right now, you've just sort of sequestered yourself and, and you're working on yourself. And you don't get to do that. Actually, it won't even work. You're thinking you've got to fix yourself before you can help others. You're too preoccupied with yourself to notice all the people in need around you. Perhaps you feel too unworthy to help other people. Maybe you're just expecting other people to do it for you. People like me. Um, there's a cure for this. Very simple. You have to get over yourself. I'm dead serious. You've got to get over yourself. Like, Jesus already died for you. There's nothing left for you to pay. No more guilt or shame. Come out of hiding, please. Seriously. He's not left you to fix yourself. He's at work in you right now. He's still a servant, even in our text. He's at work in you. You're working it out. And you don't get to work on it in private. It doesn't do any good. You've got to bring that mess out into the world and serve other people. He's at work in you, serving in you right now to make you a beautiful servant to others. It's good for the world. It's what God has planned for you. It's good for you. It's part of God's plan for making you joyful. Okay, let's pray together.